It's no secret that behavioral health and physical health are inseparable, and it's at the heart of this episode of WIHI. Complications between behavioral and chronic medical conditions mean patients experience poor outcomes and higher costs. To support healthcare organizations and health systems in accelerating their work in behavioral health integration, IHI is proud to invite you to Behavioral Health Integration, Beyond the Basics, an IHI virtual expedition featuring leading experts and innovators from across the country who will guide you through the core competencies and skills your organization will need to integrate behavioral health and primary care sustainably. IHI expeditions are affordable, action-focused online training programs designed for teams. They run two to four months and focus on the issues that challenge healthcare professionals today, and they're free for IHI Passport members. The Behavioral Health Integration Expedition will help you optimize your primary care team to integrate behavioral health through staffing models, manage complexity, co-management of patients, and warm handoffs. You'll learn how to develop a plan and a framework for integrating your own infrastructure, physical and electronic, and how to measure whether or not that integration is successful. Behavioral Health Integration, Beyond the Basics, begins its first of five sessions on July 26th. For more information on how to enroll in this expedition, visit IHI.org expeditions. And for more information on how to become an IHI Passport member, visit IHI.org passport. Now, here's WIHI. There's no question that emergency departments are prepared to do whatever they can for patients who land in the ED because of a behavioral health crisis. The problem that arises is once the patient is stabilized, what happens next? If someone with a mental health condition or substance use disorder needs to be admitted, there's often not a readily available bed anywhere. So major waits and boarding in the ED ensue. If the patient is sent home or back to the community, ED staff don't always know who will really pick up the baton, maybe no one. All this begs the question, is there an alternative to this scenario? And maybe so, and we hope so. And that's what we're going to learn more about on this edition of WIHI. And I do want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you this way live. And after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. There's work underway that's part of an initiative called Integrate behavioral health in the emergency department and upstream, or ED and up for short, funded by Wellbeing Trust. We have a terrific panel lined up to explain this initiative and the innovations emergency departments are trying out. All right, let me introduce our panel. Joining by phone, we've got Scott Zeller. He is Vice President of Acute Psychiatry at Vituity and former Chief of Psychiatric Emergency Services of the Alameda Health System in Oakland, California. Over the 29 years he's spent in emergency psychiatry, Scott has published a significant body of research on innovative designs and their implementation in emergency mental health care. Welcome, Scott Zeller. Thank you. Great to be with you, everybody this morning. Fantastic. We also have by phone Robin Henderson. She is the clinical liaison to Wellbeing Trust and chief executive of Behavioral Health for Providence Medical Group in Oregon. Robin promotes a consistent model of care for people in need of behavioral health services across the entire health system. Welcome, Robin. 
Hey, Mads. It's great to be with you today. Fantastic. Vera Foyer is the Director of Pediatric Emergency Psychiatry and Behavioral Health Urgent Care at Cohen Children's Medical Center, and that's part of Northwell Health. Vera has clinical experience in addiction psychiatry, pediatric and adult psychosomatic medicine, and emergency psychiatry. Welcome, Vera. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. All right. So those are our folks on the phone. And then here in the studio with me is Mara Laterman. She is a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and content lead for IHI's work in behavioral health. She directs a lot of research initiatives and is helping to develop all kinds of programs. Welcome, Mara. Thank you, Madge. All right. We're going to turn to Scott first uh, to, in some ways, orient us all to a shared mind of what mm-hmm. is driving these changes. So, Scott, uh, help us out here. What is happening in most emergency departments today for patients with mental health or substance abuse problems? And then what's the change in thinking in general about what's needed to improve this situation? Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much, Madge, and and, and, uh, hello to everybody, and thank you for joining in, and hopefully we're going to have a great conversation today about these issues. Uh, If we could put up the first slide that we're uh, using for today. Here's a huge problem that is happening nationwide. This is no local problem. It's no regional problem. It's everywhere around the country, and that is basically you've got people having a psychiatric emergency, and if they're even fortunate enough to have a psychiatrist or a clinician that they work with. They might call them up when they're having a difficult time and hear a voicemail that says, if you're having a psychiatric emergency, please hang up and dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency room. And even if they dial 911, chances are they're gonna be brought to that nearest emergency room. And then what happens? Well, it ends up that those emergency rooms far too often aren't really well equipped to work with people having psychiatric emergencies. So what ends up happening is patients who are waiting Uh, for an evaluation or psychiatric bed end up waiting three times longer than patients who are there for other medical problems. Uh, The the staff in the emergency department spend tons and tons of time working to try to help folks out uh, and and get people the the kind of treatment they need and dispositions they need, and this interferes with their ability to care for other emergency department patients. The average most recently is that they could have turned that bed over more than two times in the time that somebody was just boarding and they're not being able to help them at all. Uh, It's also a financial impact. Uh, Psychiatric patients in the emergency department can cost that uh, hospital more than $100 per hour in lost billing. And if you're talking about just the overall cost of the hospital, each time they board a patient, on average, it's going to cost the hospital when you put everything together about $2,300 on average every time they board. So boarding real quickly, just so that we're all on the same page about it, We defined it as somebody who is in a hospital medical emergency department, otherwise medically stable other than their psychiatric emergency condition, and they're just waiting for either a psychiatric eval or a psychiatric disposition. Unfortunately, sometimes these folks are confined with a sitter in a very close confines. Sometimes they're strapped to a gurney in a hallway. Sometimes they're in restraints. Many times, all of this is going on without any kind of intervention, any kind of treatment. And as you might imagine, when people are in this very kind of claustrophobic and kind of scary situation, for, for if you're having a psych crisis, being in the emergency room with a lot of 
uh, you know, uniform personnel running around and lights and sirens and blinking things and people screaming and, and all kinds of things going on, it, it can be very disruptive and, and very unpleasant for people having a psychiatric crisis. And sometimes as a result, their symptoms get worse. And we've been seeing more and more people coming to the emergency department, which is even, you know, exacerbating the problem. 55% increase in psych patients coming to ERs in the past decade. And over that time, 414% coming for suicidality, which is just a stunning number. Uh, boarding in and of itself can uh, you know, be a long, long time. We've been looking at numbers where it's usually averaging between eight and 34 hours for somebody who's boarding in a, in a regular ED. And sometimes that can be days and sometimes even that can be weeks, we've heard several examples of. But even places like what you think would be a gold standard, like like uh, Mass General, Harvard, we're talking about 15-hour stays for psychiatric patients. Across California, where I work, uh, where we've got 500 hospitals, the average length of stay in 2012 for a psychiatric patient was 10 hours, and that was after a decision was made that the person needed to be hospitalized. Next slide, please. So what have people done about this? Well, uh, a lot of the suggestions for the last several years have been well, all these people are waiting in the emergency department to be transferred to an inpatient bed, and there doesn't seem to be enough inpatient beds. So maybe the solution is we need to build more inpatient beds. But that's kind of a uh, you know an unusual approach. Uh, you, we don't think of any other medical condition coming to the emergency department as let's hospitalize them as our default treatment. I mean, you come in with chest pain, you come in with a high blood sugar, you come in with an asthma attack. We're going to address that in the ER. We're going to find out what's going on, start treatment, and hopefully stabilize you in the ER and, and get you back home. But for some reason, in far too many emergency departments, the default treatment is this person's having psych symptoms. Let's find him a psychiatric hospital bed. Well, even if we had tons and tons of psych hospital beds, we would end up using them up if we were doing that. If we admitted everybody to the hospital who came, for example, with chest pain, Right now, we'd be talking about how there's no med surge beds available because we'd be admitting 100% of chest pain patients instead of the 18% that is normal. And, and anybody who says that, well, maybe that's not in our system the case, I, if you're at a place where the, the, the default treatment is hospitalization for people in the ED who come in with psych symptoms, I can guarantee you that those psych hospitals are having a lot of unreimbursed one to two day admissions where the insurers are coming back or Medicaid or Medicare and saying, this person really didn't need to be hospitalized, um, and, and that's causing a problem. It's disruptive for the patient. It's bad for the psych hospital. It's bad for the ED. It, it's just not a good situation for anybody. Next slide, please. So the, it's, we're looking at the wrong solution. If we're talking about building more inpatient psych beds, yes, that would be a great addition to the overall problem. However, maybe we really need to be looking at things completely differently because if we're looking at only saying, like, the best solution for psych patients in the ER is finding more places to send them to, then we're missing the point, which is why aren't we really addressing these issues in the emergency setting like we do with every other medical emergency? And to reinforce this, what we found in all of our research is the great majority of psychiatric emergencies can be stabilized in less than 24 hours in an emergency level of care. So if we want to eliminate boarding, if we want to reduce boarding, we want to attack boarding, 
shouldn't we be really trying to focus our approaches at improving things at the ED level of care, ED and up, as we're talking about today? Next slide. One thing to really remember is that it's not inappropriate for psychiatric patients to go to the emergency department. In fact, federal laws like EMTALA, the Federal Emergency Medical Transfer and Active Labor Act, says that psychiatric emergencies, especially those where somebody's a danger to themselves or others, are the equivalent to medical emergencies like heart attacks, car accidents, trauma, what have you. And we need to actually address them in the same way in the ER and look at them as medical emergencies. And the other idea is if we could just find some magic thing to keep people away from the hospital, it's, it's never gonna happen. Psychiatric emergencies aren't gonna go away. And it would be like saying, we've come up with a program to avoid heart attacks from coming to our hospital. It doesn't make any sense. Let's not do that. Instead, let's start planning and doing proper treatment and evaluation of psychiatric emergencies in the emergency department as our best, uh, best case scenario. Next slide. So what can we do actually in the hospital when people come in with psychiatric emergency things? What are we looking at doing with our ED and UP initiative? Uh, there's, there's some simpler things that we can start almost immediately, such as improving training for the emergency department staff, getting them to understand that psychiatric emergencies are medical emergencies, that these are not people with just bad characters or, or, or who are lazy or, or something else. These are people who are experiencing medical painful conditions that need our assistance and that's why they're there. And if we can really intervene appropriately, we're gonna have phenomenal improvement and, and great outcomes. One of the things that we'd see is that if we just really focus on the, uh, eliminating the idea that the people with psych emergencies need to be treated in a coercive way, they need to be physically restrained, they need to be forcibly medicated, uh, those kind of things draw out and really create a lot of the boarding because once you've put somebody in restraints, once, once you've involuntarily medicated them, it's a lot more unlikely that your exit resource psychiatric facilities are gonna be interested in taking somebody. So it's to your advantage to really try to avoid uh, coercive treatment when possible, not that it's always gonna be, you know, that, that, that there's, it's always gonna be possible to do so. But if just for example, if you can avoid putting somebody in restraints you're gonna shorten their length of stay as a psychiatric patient in the emergency department by over four hours. Another thing to focus on is we should be using psychiatric medications as a treatment like we do with any other medication in the ER, not thinking of it as let's sedate them, let's, let's just chemically restrain them. Instead, let's, let's use proper medications that are gonna help people get better and not just to try to quiet them down. So there's some other newer innovative innovations that we can also use that we're looking at uh, with our program. One is on-demand telepsychiatry, which has already been initiated in a lot of sites around the country, and there's a number of organizations doing this. Perhaps some of you on the phone are already involved in this. Uh, basically having a psychiatrist beam in to uh, your emergency department on-demand, seeing a patient within an hour, there's a nationwide shortage of psychiatrists, so there's nowhere near enough a psychiatrist to be able to drive over to your site, but we may be able to have psychiatrists come and see your patient almost immediately over high-definition video conferencing, and there's just been some wonderful, wonderful outcomes on that we can get into later. Another uh, possibility, especially for sites that are seeing busier numbers, four or more psych patients per day, is a concept that we're collectively calling empath units. An empath stands for 
Emergency Psychiatry Assessment, Treatment, and Healing Unit. And it's basically a separate section of the ER or an adjacent section to the ER that's so, solely a psychiatric emergency facility that's just for the emergency psych patients who otherwise might have been boarding in the ED, where we're going to get them into a much more home-like, supportive, uh, appropriate setting with you know uh, experienced psychiatric personnel to work with these folks where they can be for up to 24 hours. Instead of gurneys, everybody gets a recliner, patients are free to move about. We see amazing, amazing results with these units, uh, especially not the least of which is that physical restraints and involuntary meds are usually in less than 1% of patients. Just getting people into a different environment changes everything. The other thing that's really neat about these observation type units is that even somebody who looked like when they came in the door of the emergency department, oh, this is a slam dunk admission, get them into a more appropriate environment with better trained personnel and 75% or more of those folks who would have been admitted in the traditional system are now able to go to what we'd call a less restrictive level of care, which is typically home. So I think that wraps up my slides, and I'll turn it back over. Thank you so much, Scott. Uh, a lot of information and a lot of good context to understand now what this initiative is looking um, toward. And uh, I'll turn now to Mara. So tell us about the new initiative, ED and UP, and uh, maybe the stars are aligning. Uh, all the stuff that Scott has discussed uh, has perhaps helped people become more open uh, to some real alternatives. Thanks, Mara. Sure. Thanks, Madge. So we're nine months into this EDNUP project. It's a 27-month collaboration between IHI and Wellbeing Trust. And as Scott said, we're really trying to reimagine how we can integrate mental and behavioral health care into the ED and to understand some of the levers upstream that are sending people to the emergency department to begin with. So during the first six months of our work together, our research team reviewed the literature. We conducted over two dozen expert interviews. We really wanted to understand what are existing approaches, what are the gaps, and what are some opportunities for improvement. And one thing we learned is that there are there are so many great projects. There's so much excellent work happening all over the country. And while this work is critical, we're still not seeing the impact that we need to see to improve outcomes uh, for patients and families and the experience that patients and families have in the emergency department. Department. So from this research and from our analysis of the gaps, we've developed a change package. And our change package is focused on the theory that we will have a greater impact by intervening at multiple points in the system of care that spans healthcare and the community than we can in working on isolated parts of the system. So the second phase of work, which is where we are right now, started in March, and we are working in a learning community that's going through August of 2019. So we're still in early days with this work. And our aim is to improve patient outcomes, experience of care, and staff safety, while also looking at how we can decrease avoidable emergency department revisit, so people coming back to the ED for individuals who have mental health or substance abuse needs. And we have an incredible team. Uh, we have nine incredible teams from EDs at all over the country, uh, nine hospitals, including Vera and her team at Cohen Children's, 
who are serving a a diverse group of patients with a a real wide range of behavioral health needs. And each of the teams have identified this work as a a high priority for their organization, and they're committing the resources and the time to making this happen. It's a lot of work. And these teams are working alongside faculty, including Scott and Robin, to test changes within each of the five primary drivers that make up our theory of change. And we don't have all of the answers, and I think it's important to note that we know a lot of great things that work, um, and we hope that we're able to demonstrate that we can come up with new ideas and learn as we go. Um, And together, we will hopefully address many of these issues that Scott is describing. So over the course of the next 15 months, we will be working with these teams on testing change ideas focused on the ED and upstream. And these changes fall into five primary drivers, which you can see on this slide. The first is around building community partnerships. EDs aren't going to be able to do this work alone. And this is where, you know, we're really talking about going upstream, what partnerships and relationships can be built between health systems and other community-based entities? And then how can we improve coordination between the emergency department and other healthcare and community-based services? The third bucket of work is all about standardizing processes in the ED. So a lot of what Scott is talking about, what can be done in the ED to help a patient start to get better and not just wait to a transfer to another setting of, of care? The fourth is around engaging patients and families, so really making sure that from the moment somebody walks into the emergency department to after they leave, patients and families are treated with respect, with dignity, and they are a part of the care team, really creating a care plan that will work to help that person be supported once they leave the ED. And then finally, creating a trauma-informed culture among ED staff, which Robin will talk more about. And so as I mentioned, some of these changes we know, and they need to be adapted and spread, but we've already seen teams come up with innovative new ideas to help solve some of these longstanding challenges that health systems have been experiencing for a long time. And it, it is a heavy lift, but I, we think that right now it's time to really go all in and demonstrate that we can make meaningful improvements for this population. All right. Thanks, Mara. And uh, folks can study the primary and secondary uh, drivers uh, and perhaps ask some questions about it uh, in Q&A. And uh, Mara also has, you know, more information about um, all the different teams and some of the things that they're working on. But let's now turn, thanks, Mara, let's now turn to Robin Henderson. Um, and uh, Robin could talk about a lot of things. Uh, we've asked her to specifically address this issue of trauma-informed care and uh, Robin, uh, why that is uh, so important. I have to confess that I just assume that, of course, if you're working with psychiatric patients, staff have this sort of uh, headset and, and training, but that may not always be the case. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Matt. And, and you're correct. When we look at trauma and we hear the word trauma, our emergency departments are well prepared to deal with all the things that they can fix, blood, guts, the whole nine yards. That's their training, that's their space, and that's what they do well. But when we're dealing with psychiatric issues and the type of trauma we see there, that presents a different challenge. It's not as easy to see with the eyes that we use to clinically assess people. There's not a blood pressure cuff that tells us that we're in psychiatric trauma. So I wanted to kind of start and frame this a little bit with the experience of what happens for people when they come into an emergency department really just about anywhere. And this is not a a pejorative at all. This is the reality of where we're at. The reality is when most psychiatric patients present to an emergency department, most emergency departments aren't prepared for them. So they may do things like put people into different colors of scrubs 
because that's a safety procedure that we've adopted because we have staff who've been hit or hurt or harmed before or people have come in with weapons of some kind in order to engage in self-harming behavior. We have people who come in who are actively psychotic and NAMI actually does, NAMI National prepared a really, really lovely video that starkly shows the experience of somebody who's in a psychotic episode in an emergency department. And it shows it from two perspectives. Because when that person comes in and they're psychotic and they've been um, very panicked and very paranoid, they're not able to communicate effectively with an emergency department team who in their mind is following their procedures to get that person safe. And that act of doing all of that can actually feed into the psychotic process and make things worse. So normally, when we're looking at somebody coming into the emergency department with a minor trauma, like a broken arm or a broken finger or something like that, we'll take them back, we'll let them stay in their own clothes, we may let them have a family member with them, and they keep things like their cell phone and their wedding ring. But when you have somebody who's coming in and presenting and they're hearing voices and they may be actively psychotic in some type of minor trauma, generally speaking, we will take those things that are of close comfort to them, like their clothing and their cell phone and their wedding ring. And those are the types of things that we do because we don't understand the unintended consequences of our best intentions. Let's go to the next slide. We got here because of trauma. When we're looking at trauma, we look at the trauma that our patients feel. We also need to look at the trauma that our staff have felt, especially on the front lines in an emergency department. The folks who work in an emergency department see very horrific things every day, and that's what they're trained to see. And they also have to find a place to put that, and that has impact on them. Trauma challenges an individual's world of the view, a view of the world as a just and safe place and a very predictable place. Trauma disrupts all of that. And we don't do a really good job of working with our emergency department staff to say, you've got to figure out who you are and where you are in your own experience of trauma and how that informs what it is that when you look at a patient, what it is that you see. Maybe you have a history of violence in your own family. So when you see someone who's creating violence in your emergency department, you have a specific reaction. Maybe there's something that's happened in your emergency department, an event that's been very traumatic. At one of the first hospitals that I went to uh, about 15 years ago, working with their emergency department, they had had a suicide in their emergency department. And it had been four years before. And yet they had created an entire series of activities for every psychiatric patient who presented based on that one aberrant event and change their entire culture. It takes a lot to undo that and to change that. And that's the work of a trauma-informed emergency department. Let's go to the next slide, please. Our normal frame when we look at quality assurance is really to go in and look at, you know, where are the defects? And we want to fix the defects. And that's how we approach things. It's very much the culture of hospitals. You know, what happens 97% of the time, yay, that's great, keep doing that, that's wonderful. But let's figure out where the aberrant behavior is. And when we apply that same thinking to a trauma-informed culture, what we create are environments that are very based in fear, the false evidence that appears to be real, as opposed to based in fact. 97% of the time, when a psychiatric patient presents to an emergency department, there won't be violence. There won't be harm to staff. There won't be a self-harm incident. Those things won't happen. And yet we've created cultures and you know processes and policies around the 3% of the time that it will. 
And that's the way that we've always traditionally thought about quality assurance. So the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to really go back in, take a look at your policies, and see what it is that you could do today that's based in that thinking of what might happen as opposed to what does happen. Let's go to the next slide. The second thing we need to do is to really start to change our own frame. We're often looking at people saying, hey, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with that person? But the reality is simply changing the language to say, what matters to you? What happened to you? And really giving the message that says, you matter. The space from where you come, you as a person matter. And what's happening all around you, we can deal with. We got this. But you matter. Those types of changing how we question, changing how we think, changing our own attitudes, even in how we approach each other as staff, really start to build. Those are the, the building blocks of a trauma-informed culture within an emergency department. Let's go to the next slide. The last thing and the most important is really trying to change the frame of meeting people where they're at. When we look at the people who present to our emergency department in psychiatric crisis, there's more than just the psychiatric crisis going on. Many of these individuals are homeless. They're struggling with chronic pain, addiction. They have social determinant of health needs that are beyond what an emergency department can care for. And yet, they influence why people end up there. When we look at people who show up chronically to the emergency department, it's often the social determinants of health that are driving them there. So we need to help educate our staff to meet people where they're at and give them the tools that they need, involve our community, involve peers. This is part of why IHI has partnered with, with NAMI as one of our faculty members, Chris Benef from NAMI Oregon, coming in and bringing that peer and family perspective that says these are the things that we really need to attend to because what matters to you matters most. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, big and important concepts. And again, um, I look forward to unpacking some of this in the Q&A. Thank you so much, Robin. All right, Vera Foyer, uh, we're on to you. Uh, you work in a pediatric emergency psychiatry, and there are some unique features to that. At the same time, we have also discussed in planning that uh, there are some very, very good uh, lessons learned and practices that can be applied to the adult population. So tell us uh, some of what's going on at Cohen Children's. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. Um, so at the Cohen Children's Medical Center, we have uh, a fairly uh, large uh, pediatric ER, uh, and about 5% of the pediatric ER's volume uh, is uh, kids coming in with various psychiatric issues. So uh, we've had uh, a lot of kids uh, in the past several years, so we've started uh, working on coming up with uh, some solutions for some of these problems. Uh, the uh, issues in uh, pediatrics are, you know, very similar to what was, uh, you know, described by Scott uh, and others before. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, we do have some uh, differences uh, with the population that we serve. And, and, and one is, is that not, you know, most places in the country, kids do not get seen in a service like ours where we have child psychiatrists and social workers and a large multidisciplinary team. And as you can see on the slide, a, a nice dedicated area that we can manage these patients uh, in an expert way. Uh, most of the country, kids get seen by either adult emergency medicine providers 
providers, uh, if even psychiatrists, uh, and only uh, very few places have pediatric psychiatric expertise present. And what that leads to is uh, sort of uh, out of concerns uh, over safety and a lack of expertise, sort of overutilization, for example, of inpatient um, hospitalization for this population uh, is, uh, I think, an issue uh, because of the lack of expertise. Uh, and uh, on average, uh, kids uh, get hospitalized uh, way more for psychiatric issues than they do for, you know, medical problems and uh, probably more than they, uh, than they really need to be. Um, you know, kids often get sent to emergency departments purely because there's no outpatient alternative available. If any concern comes up in school, let's say a child uh, draws uh, people hanging from a tree and nobody's really sure what that means, they might end up in an emergency room uh, for a suicide assessment and they uh, might be right next to a child that's there for a very different and a much more serious reason. So sort of in pediatrics, uh, in many ways, the solution or the low-hanging fruit is really providing access to expertise quickly uh, in an ambulatory setting for those kids that don't necessarily need the ER, uh, but just need an assessment. Um, you know, the majority of the issues that come in uh, to our emergency department are, you know, adjustment disorder, depressive disorder, concerns about suicidality, uh, and we have a very diverse population. Uh, some of the things that this uh, learning community had uh, really uh, enabled us to do in some of the projects that we're working on uh, has to do with what I mentioned earlier about uh, providing and developing a space for kids that don't necessarily need the ER uh, and diverting from the ER to an ambulatory program. And so uh, we had started um, not, not long before the IHI Collaborative started, but we had started developing an urgent care program, uh, which uh, we have a grant for, uh, that's an alternative to an ER visit. And uh, it's still staffed by a child psychiatrist that allows that immediate access to the expertise that's often needed uh, when schools or therapists have concerns about the kids and they need to see a physician. It helps avoid uh, revisits to the emergency room because if there's issues that come up for kids that we see in the ER, we have them come back to urgent care to follow up uh, if they are not in care and need that transitional space. Uh, and it can also help avoid an impatient stay or serve as an alternative uh, because the evidence really for, uh, for example, for suicidality interventions is really more around safety planning and sort of initiating that uh, care and doing those crisis intervention that Scott was talking about earlier and then providing that linkage and caring contact uh, to the families ongoingly and linking them uh, to follow up. So our projects uh, focus on that and we have clinicians identifying the highest risk cases and our social workers following up with the families and trying to uh, uh, enroll them uh, in, uh, in care. We've also been working on uh, obtaining uh, 
family feedback and we started doing surveys and uh, as was mentioned, we've reached out to our local NAMI and our hospital's parent advisory council to try to uh, engage the families and, and the feedback has been helpful and the feedback has been all around linkage and finding follow-up care uh, because it's such a challenge and that's what families are telling us that they need more help with. Uh, we've also been working on uh, more education for both the patients and the families as well as uh, the staff. Um, we do things like agitation management simulations for all our ED staff or our pediatric staff uh, from the rest of the hospital to with standardized patients that are our own staff uh, to help uh, learn, manage these situations and develop their skills. Uh, which really has helped uh, avoid coercion and avoid uh, medicating and restraints and been working on uh, educating uh, our staff in helping coach the kids uh, to develop some skills and coping with the crisis that they're in and uh, providing them with some tools to be able to uh, utilize their skills. And the, the last piece that we have been working uh, on and that is really jives with the goals of the learning community is uh, collaborating with primary care uh, providers, schools, and our community partners. Uh, we're developing uh, very easy streamlined referrals so that uh, if we're trying to really link more kids, trying to simplify the workflows and work together with these organizations, so that it's more feasible with the resources that we have and engaging our Northwell partners um, as well to uh, on better communication uh, and, you know, providing more overall wraparound care for these families. Okay. Uh, thank you uh, so much, Vera. I know we're all moving through a lot of uh, ideas and programs, uh, but as always, WIHI is trying to kind of open up some windows, and we always hope you'll open them uh, wider by uh, looking into some of the things that you're learning uh, about uh, the issues. I want to get right to chat. Um, should we go right to chat, Mara, or you want to say just one or two words a little bit about Upstream uh, as part of this? This as well. Sure, I can yeah. just say quickly before we get to yeah. the chat. I think you know we've touched on we've touched on a couple of things related to upstream. We've talked about how somebody should not be in the ED for that long, and there are many things that the ED cannot and should not have to manage on their own. And the ED is generally not the best place for somebody who's having a mental health crisis. And so, while we want to ensure that when people do come to the ED, they're receiving timely and safe and compassionate care, many, including in this initiative, are starting to think about what we can do in the community to provide preventative and supportive services so that people might not need to come to the emergency department in the first place. And these are the kind of upstream services, the upstream part of this project. And these are critical to make sure that people are receiving the right level of care in the right place at the right time instead of defaulting to the emergency department. And so this is where the partnerships and relationships with the community are really essential, thinking about work with law enforcement, with emergency medical services, with outpatient mental health and substance abuse treatment providers. And there, are, the research on this is still in a somewhat nascent stage, although there's a lot of bright spots around the country. And there are some great models. There's community paramedicine models. There are mobile crisis teams. There's peer support programs. There's better integration of mental health into all different settings of healthcare. And so, um, as Vera mentioned, many of our EDNUP teams are already testing some changes around these partnerships in addition to the work in the ED. And I think that this is really the critical point, and this is where people are going to need to go to really address this problem. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks to all our panelists. 
us. Let's get right into uh, the questions so we can get uh, to as many of them as possible before we have to wrap up. So uh, I want to say a couple – well, let's start with um, a question about – just what we heard most recently. I'm sort of going to go um, from the bottom up there. Uh, Vera, there was a question about uh, any examples of the agitation management simulations and the DBT skills primer. Uh, I don't know if those are resources that you are able to share any links with or where, you know, are these things that you have uh, designed specifically uh, for the pediatric population, uh, any guidance on where people might be able to learn more about that? Sure. So the agitation simulations, we actually recently published them uh, in an article in the Child and Adolescent uh, Psychiatric Clinics of North America, which the July issue focused on uh, pediatric emergency psychiatry. And one of the articles talks about the different education initiatives, and we describe the agitation simulations in there. Uh, as far as the DBT skills uh, training and the coping kits, I'm happy, they're sort of homegrown resources, uh, but I'm happy to share, um, you know, uh, with the group. Um, yes, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. What we'll do is, uh, Vera, uh, we have a resource page uh, when we create the sure. archive page, and we'll see what you've got and see what we can add. And we send a follow-up email to everyone who enrolled in the WIHI, excuse me, reminding you of the resources. So we'll... we'll I can, yeah, anything you can, you know, there's a lot of instant... Yeah, I can gr- put in the chat their link to the article, and Perfect. then the rest we can put perhaps later on the website. Absolutely. That's uh, wonderful. Okay, let me now get to a couple of other questions. Mara, you spoke of standardizing processes uh, related to intake and discharge. Um, what, any any way you can become a little more concrete about uh, things that are being tried? Sure, um, I can start, and then I'd love to get Scott's input on this as well. I think you know what we've seen is there's a lot of variation in current practice in assessment, in triage, in treatment, and teams often aren't aware that there are evidence based guidelines for some of the things they're seeing. There are tools for, like the BARS tool to screen for agitation, different uh, suicide screening tools that they need to train staff and that they need to implement and then have the decision support tools as a part of their workflow to actually help that happen. So I think across the kind of uh, patient journey, if you will, in the ED, there are a lot of opportunities to bring in evidence that's not currently happening to reduce some of the variation in care. And I'd love um, if Scott could speak a little bit more to kind of what can be standardized and, and what is out there that people can be doing. Thank you. Scott? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thanks, Mara. Um, you know, one of the things, interestingly, I, I was uh, recently on a panel with Eleanor McCants-Katz, who's the head of the SAMHSA, it's kind of like the mental health behavioral health czar for the United States. And she was really pushing the idea that when people get onto hospital grounds with behavioral health issues, we need to think of them along the lines of, as we would of any other medical condition. And I think we touched on that a bit earlier uh, as well. But uh, going along the lines with the question, what Mar was just saying, you know, we, we shouldn't think of behavioral health as some kind of magical spiritual concept that's outside of the realm of medical care as we know it, but that it can actually fit right in into evidence-based standardized medical care that we can actually quantify and do in a best practices scenario. So 
Yes, uh, you know, we, we can, uh, on an intake, we can actually take a look at different standardized scales like the bar scale, like suicide screening scales that's going, that are going to help us determine levels of risk and, and the best next steps. We've created, uh, so somebody was asking about agitation earlier, I can uh, point them back to the, the project beta guidelines that have been out for a few years now, which is uh, capital B-E-T-A, which stands for best practices in the evaluation and treatment of agitation. Algorithms in every single aspect of working with agitated patients in an emergency department, be it triage, be it evaluation, be it de-escalation techniques, psychopharmacologic approaches, means to avoid seclusion and restraint uh, and involuntary treatment, and if you have to go to that, best practices to do so. So there's, there are a lot of great guidelines that are out there that are evidence-based, that are standardized, that are being implemented in great ways uh, across the country, if not around the world. Uh, and if you really try to take away the idea that there's medical and there's psychiatric and realize that they're all part of the same ball of wax, and try to look at them as like, okay, we're in the ER, we're helping people who are suffering. And if we think that that suffering can come from any direction and just look at it all as the same kind of, this is part of our role, you're gonna get much better outcomes and everybody's going to recognize more that these aren't some kind of different or special patients, these are just another type of patient that we're working with in the ER and we can help in the same way while still recognizing the kind of things that was said earlier about trauma-informed and all that, yet understanding them as medical patients in that way can often help us to get rid of that stigma and think of them as different. Yes, there's going to be some things that are a little different, but every single medical illness has something that's different about it. And we understand that, we recognize it, we use it as we move forward, but if we put it all in together, we're gonna to get a terrific outcome and we're actually going to reduce the stigma and I think staff will feel a lot better about the work they're doing. Thank you so much, uh, Scott. And speaking of outcomes, question for you, Robin, uh, that you may or may not have seen in the chat. Somebody is wondering whether there is there um, with using or the use of more trauma-informed care, culture change in that respect. Uh, do we have any evidence that it reduces ED length of stay, boarding time, reduced violence, or any other metrics that might uh, be being used? Um, Somebody is asking even if there's any research or literature on this. Thanks, Robin. Yes, and there actually is some literature that's starting to come out. Uh, Oregon Health Sciences University, OHSU, has done some great research with their uh, ED at Dornbecker and utilizing trauma-informed care tools like collaborative problem solving in a pediatric emergency department, and they've just published a number of articles, which I believe IHI has in the, in the deck of resources that we have available. SAMHSA also has uh, some guides for clinicians that have research base in them uh, talking about trauma-informed care in behavioral health services. So there's a lot of research starting to come forward that says this makes a difference in reducing ED boarding time, being able to get people uh, back home without having to go through the trauma of going to acute care. And some of the things that Scott was talking about, even in terms of the approach of how we care for people to reduce the trauma that can escalate a behavioral health episode. 
So I think we're going to see more research going forward, but there definitely is stuff out there that we can make available. Okay, sounds good. Well, I think it again, it's somewhat early days, uh, maybe for people getting you know in search of uh, the hardline results. Um, but uh, I, I think you know these are all things that will come. And as Robin said, there is some literature. Robin, I think we're going to look to you at least for the clues about where we might find that NAMI video uh, you referred to. I think that got some people's uh, attention as something that could be very effective uh, for uh, staff, uh, you know, looking uh, to to make some changes. So if you have any uh, knowledge of where that might be, either during the show or afterwards, let us know. Uh, I also want to, uh, somebody is asking, and I have to apologize, I don't know what CPI stands for, uh, but somebody was uh, wondering about uh, any particular training uh, that would be available um, for for that. Uh, anyone else uh, care to shed light on CPI? <laughs> anyone? <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, we hit the... Uh, <laughs> What what do we got? Crisis they were the Knife Violence Prevention, prevention Institute. Institute. Yeah, Prevention Institute. Yeah. Oh my goodness, we've yeah. okay. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, crisis Prevention Intervention. That's the CPI. Uh, otherwise, it could be called Crisis Prevention Training. So, I guess is that being used? Is that uh, one of the tools or resources? Um, Scott, may I ask you that at least? Uh, for the moment, um, my yeah. understanding is that you know there's, there's a number of companies and organizations out there that will come to a uh, facility and, and help with training on working with patients who might be at higher risk. And CPI is one of those companies. It's actually a private company called uh, I think Crisis Prevention Institute. But there's other companies out there that are doing similar work. Okay. Uh, so we probably. Don't want to get in the uh, go get going into endorsing one over another. All right, people will go and and search for yours. Um, there is a question about high utilizers, uh, which in some sense is woven throughout this discussion without our really saying so. Robin, how would you address uh, that question that somehow uh, high utilizers present uh, a different uh, or unique set of challenges? Do you agree with that or what would you say? I definitely agree with that. High utilizers present very unique challenges because staff often, and we've seen this in our high utilizer work, develop... um, Inherent biases. Oh, I've just seen you last week. I know that this, you know, really isn't an issue. Oh, you're just drug seeking. Oh, you're whatever. Our stigma comes into full play. And the reality is, for many people, especially people who have not had consistent health insurance, the emergency department becomes primary care. It becomes the familiar. It becomes their family. And we don't necessarily look with fresh eyes at high utilizers on how we're caring for them. One of the ways that we've dealt with some of our high utilizers and super utilizers, who often are folks who struggle with mental health conditions, substance use disorders, and chronic pain, is to do almost like a treatment team with, we actually call it a a multidisciplinary treatment team, with emergency room staff, emergency room docs, and psychiatry to develop our own internal care plan for how we'll, we'll work with that person. And then we take that care plan to the individual and kind of say, how do you like how you're getting your health care? Is that really working for you? And most of the time, they just don't really know what else to do. And nobody's ever actually engaged with them as people and individuals. 
So it really comes back to that trauma-informed approach of what actually matters to you. It may be that they don't have transportation to primary care. It may be that they don't have housing. And it may also be that they don't have a meal. So really looking at changing our frame in a trauma-informed way is the way that we've looked at that. Okay. Yeah, thank- and if I could actually tag on to that, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. it was really, really well said by Robin. And, and one other thing that's really uh, interesting about, you know, people, when they see what they might call the frequent flyers or the malingerers, uh, it's easy to get kind of disdainful and pejorative about them. It's like, oh, we've, we've seen this person so many times, they're just here for this or that, or they don't really need our help. And they kind of get pushed to the side. They, you know, nobody comes to the emergency room unless they need help. You know, people aren't coming there. People don't wake up to the one morning saying, I'm going to the ER today because it's really fun to go there. Uh, it, it may be that they're coming there and using it inappropriately, or there may be better options for them, but maybe they're not familiar with that. Or maybe they just don't realize that this isn't their only way that they can get the help they need. So one of the things we find that's really useful in working with this population, which rather than calling them malingerers uh, along a more trauma-informed sense, we would say that they might be contingently suicidal. And along those lines would be, instead of saying, oh my gosh, you're here again, what do you want this time? One question we like to ask is, what, what, are, you, what are we able to offer you that you're not getting somewhere else? And when we ask that question, sometimes maybe we can get, surprise our, our colleague patient a little bit more and, and maybe find out a little bit more about what it is they're seeking and perhaps find a way to direct them uh, towards services that, that uh, that might, might be more appropriate than using the ED. Uh, but I think, again, the, the, the line is, is, is that, uh, you know, people need our help, and just saying that they're one sort of person or another is never going to improve things or prevent them from coming back. There's actually a way to engage in, in a trauma-informed way, and when we do that, we might actually reduce that recidivism and find a better outcome for them. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot. There are additional questions about uh, delirium, uh, Jerry Syke, uh, but I want to be sure to get in some information because one of the things that's going to happen is there's going to be another call on August 1st. Um, and uh, John, if we could throw that slide up there, uh, because I think uh, what's really exciting is people do have a lot of questions and are very, very curious. And um, I imagine Mara might be able to uh, continue this discussion, and I don't know if the calls will be themed uh, with the Friends of ED and Up uh, series, uh, but it seems as though people will have other opportunities uh, to ask what you're learning. Yes, absolutely. So as you can see on the slide, we are we know that there's a lot of people who are very interested in this topic. And, you know, we have nine hospitals in the initiative. We want to be able to share what we're learning, share ideas from teams, and also to hear from other people out there who are doing this work, because we know that many of you are working on this. So we are doing this Friends of EDN Up quarterly web series to help uh, people stay updated about our work and to be able to share what we're learning as we go. So um, you can see Deborah, our senior project manager's email. I'm sitting next to her. And um, I think some of you have already found her email address and she her inbox is filling up. Um, and we also uh, will be at the IHI National Forum speaking about this work with some of our colleagues. And so this isn't the last you'll hear from us. Um, part of this work will involve a lot of sharing in various dissemina- dissemination mechanisms. And so um, we hope to be able to share more about what the teams are doing and what we're learning as we go. Okay. Thanks a lot. And uh, that's in that way, hopefully people will forgive
give. We don't get to every uh, sort of aspect of the population here. Um, I think we're sort of covering um, sort of a, a lot of good uh, general ideas. I think, Scott, I want to turn to you for your uh, some of the final things you wanted to say about how a government can help, policy can make a difference, and some sort of parting ideas, and we'll put those up there uh, from Scott's Ways for the Feds and State to Help and Zeller's Six Goals. Okay, we'll go to the other one, the first one. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, so real quickly, you, you, actually, if you could go back to the six goals, because okay. I think that that really understates uh, kind of what we try to do in emergency psychiatry. And like I was saying earlier, I've been doing uh, emergency psychiatry over 30 years and published these six goals uh, about eight years ago. And really, it tries to sum up what we can do for somebody coming in in a psychiatric crisis, an emergency psychiatric condition in the emergency department in a way to kind of frame it other than thinking, oh, we need to admit this person or let's let's put this person with a sitter or a security guard. There's some really quick goals that you can think of that I wouldn't mind spending 30 seconds just really quickly explaining. One is make sure that this is a medically stable person otherwise, other than their psychiatric emergency medical condition, because anywhere from 10 to 20% of people coming to the ER with what appears to be psychiatric emergency conditions are actually medical emergencies, uh, or else there are psychiatric conditions that are exacerbated by medical conditions. So never assume that somebody's just psych. Uh, there's often comorbid medical problems, or even the psych problems such as hypoglycemia or, or postictal or, or toxic states, withdrawal states can actually be uh, due to medical situations. Next, we want to rapidly stabilize the medical, uh, the, the acute mental health crisis. Remember that these folks are really, really suffering. They're experiencing the equivalent of psychiatric pain. And so don't say, okay, go, we can put you in the back corner while we treat the more important patients and we'll get to you. These people are suffering just as much as anybody in very severe pain that are in there. When we do treat them as quickly as possible, we want to do it in such a way as we've been talking about that's trauma-informed, we avoid coercion, and we, instead of telling them what to do, we want to work together with them to find out what's best with them. And then the, finally, the, kind of the idea of treat in the least restrictive setting, which goes against that basic concept that people have always thought, oh, you're having symptoms, let's find you a psych hospital. Well, the psych hospital is a very restrictive setting. Maybe the most restrictive setting is being in restraints, but being in a locked psych hospital that's not nearly a, a comfortable place for you compared to your own home. So we'd always like to be working towards getting people back to home and being in a more home-like setting as opposed to being hospitalized. So the idea of hospitalization as the best scenario for these folks is actually the opposite of the best scenario. Mm -hmm. But what we would like to do is get them home and do it in such a way where we have good follow-up. The better follow-up we get, the better opportunity we have to reduce recidivism and help them get care in the outpatient world and avoid using the emergency department. And then next, we'll, final, we'll finish up with the ideas about what we can help for, uh, on the feds and state level. Next slide. All right. Fed ways for feds. You see that one, John? Ways for feds. There we go. There we go. Yeah. So, so there, there's, there's been, uh, I think, one of the main things that, that we'd like to see happen um, that, that's not happening right now, there's really no reimbursement for emergency psych services. I think it's still that that as we're talking to you all today about, let's start thinking about working with psych patients in emergency settings in an emergency way, a lot of the reimbursement hasn't caught up with that. They're still seeing people getting medically cleared in the ER as one cost center, 
and the inpatient hospital as another cost center and nothing in between. And so it would be great if we could really start getting just appropriate, reasonable reimbursements for these kind of services. Many states do have them, but a lot still don't. Uh, the other is that because we do have a dramatic shortage of psychiatric providers and we can maximize their utilization by using them across state lines, be it by telemedicine or locums or what have you, uh, the, the old-fashioned uh, state licensing and hospital credentialing, which is, seems to be a remnant of the 1950s, is preventing uh, good interfacility uh, interventions by these kind of doctors and other mental health providers. And anything we can do to kind of uh, help with that, there has been an interstate licensing compact that just started last year, which has been wonderful, where people who are licensed in one state can get licensed in some others, but it's only in 22 states. So we need it in many more states, and that's going to make it easier for your site if maybe you're having a hard time getting a psychiatrist or a mental health practitioner at your site, that maybe they can come there uh, via locums, via, via video conferencing, via what have you. And then just an understanding that there are other levels in between uh, emergency uh, medical care and inpatient psychiatry, that we can have emergency psychiatric care and that there should be appropriate uh, legislation that can permit these sites and don't say, hey, uh, it's one or the other, make up your mind. Uh, people need to be more progressive and, and think that we're, we're evolving and people recognize how wonderful these kind of programs can be, so let's not have uh, uh, regulations and legislation that's preventing them from happening. So I think that's all I had to say on that. And thanks again, Madge. It's been a wonderful uh, experience. Well, thank you so much, uh, Scott. And I also uh, want to thank Mara here. Robin and uh, Vera, let me get each of you in there with any parting uh, thoughts. Uh, so much more to say. We look forward to continuing to learn from each of you as well and the initiative going forward and on uh, future calls. Robin, any final thoughts for the program today? Uh, the only thought I'd really leave you with is the idea that it can be daunting to look at changing an entire culture in an emergency department. So pick one thing, pick one place to start, and start really focusing on how we look at our staff and our patients as people. And if we start with our own shared humanity, that really is the best place to go from. Okay. All right. Sounds right to me. Vera, any uh, final thoughts for today? Uh, really just uh, echoing Robin, I think for me the biggest learning experience in this learning collaborative was learning about really doing one thing at a time and pre and experimenting with it until it works before really expanding it. Uh, and that uh, way of uh, working on improvements is really uh, working. It's uh, hard to do, but uh, but I think it's really worth it and I think that that's how this is done. All right. Well, real pleasure uh, to meet all of you virtually speaking. I want to thank all our panelists today. I want to thank uh, our audience. You've been fantastic. I've asked tremendous questions, uh, many of which we will continue to try to get to. And also people have shared a lot of very useful information, which is a reminder to all of you that you can download this chat when you log off the program. Uh, if you forget to do so, uh, you can find it on IHI.org. 
org uh, tomorrow by noon as part of our archive page. Also, you'll find the audio there and the resources, and you can also find the audio on uh, iTunes as well. If you subscribe to Institute for Healthcare Improvements podcast on iTunes, then you'll always be reminded of the show. Uh, next up on WIHI, we're going to be talking about new thinking as well of patient experience and ways that you uh, probably shouldn't be change, uh, chasing your patient experience scores in isolation from the other work that you're doing uh, in your organization. Any questions whatsoever, we talk fast around here, you can email info at IHI.org. Folks there will be happy to help you out. So thank you all again. The people who help make this WIHI possible are John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, and Val Weber. Special thanks to Deborah Bammel, who's here with us in the studio for all her help uh, with securing panelists for this show, and she has a big role in, in steering this project, this initiative. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, you've been a great audience, great panel. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.